We continue the Shear in Navi. Uh, just for a second, or a minute or two, or a synopsis, slight review of the story, because of the fact that we have to go back to add a few sidelights. The story we dealt with last Shear, the Navi was the case where Cheskyahu HaMelech became ill, fatally so, when the Navi Shayahu came to him, told him he was going to die and lose Gan also. Because, as great as Cheskyahu HaMelech was, he had failed to perform the first mitzvah of the Torah, which is getting married and having children. Now, as we stated this one point, Cheskyahu HaMelech said to the Navi, if that's the case, if my crime is that bad, though I know, I felt, I was exempt because of the fact that I too am a prophet and I could foresee I was going to have evil children, Rishoyim, wicked children going against Hashem, idol worshippers, and I felt that there was no mitzvah bringing such children into the world. However, since you say that I was wrong, let me marry your daughter and perhaps we can change fate. Perhaps I myself, who am a tzaddik, your daughter, the daughter of Shaya Navi, perhaps this union together could bring about good children despite the prediction as seen in the stars. To this, Shaya Navi replied, it is too late, your fate, your doom has been sealed, and that's it. At that point, Haskiyah told the Navi to leave because he said, I know from my grandfather, David HaMelech, King David, who stated that never should a Jew give up hope. Even if there is a sword lying on his throat, pressing down, it's a matter of seconds before he dies, the Jew should still maintain faith and hope in that he will be saved. So now, despite your prediction of my death, I will turn to Hashem and Tefillah, which Hezekiah Melech did. His Tefillah was answered. <clears throat> his life was saved, and Hashem spoke to him and told him he's going to add 15 years to his life in addition to a miracle which was shown to him that proved this promise, when his son moved back 10 hours, which means that that was a special day which consisted of 22 hours. The average day is a 12-hour day and 12-hour night. This was a day of 22 hours, exactly 22 hours, because it represented the fact that Cheskiah Melech had spread so much Taita among the Jews, the Taita is symbolized by the number 22. Since there are 22 letters in the Aleph phase, every word of the Taita is part of those 22 letters. A different combination of those 22 letters, they are called the Chaf Beis Asvan Veraisa, 22 letters of the Taita. And that is why, to symbolize this, it was a day of 22 hours. That was a story we had last week, and now to add a few side points which were not included then. First, that story, most of it was taken from the Gemara, Bavli. The Gemara tells, as we said, that when Yishayinavi told Cheskiah Melech, you are going to die because you did not get married and have children, Cheskiah Melech replied, let me correct my mistake. Let me try to outwit fate. 
let me marry your daughter, and this zivig will be so holy that despite what I foresaw in the future, perhaps the Kedusha of this union will be able to repel or repulse that prediction. At this point, Shainavi said it was too late, and he walked out. Yerushalmi says, Yerushalmi says that the story was different, a different version, that when he was told, Eskimo was told that he was going to die for the sin, then the Navi, Shainavi, offered to him and said to him, I would suggest that I could be of help with this suggestion, why don't you marry my daughter? And then this would possibly offset this death penalty of yours. Plus, it would mean you're repenting, plus the fact that you would not have any evil children. It's an entirely different version. There is a third version, as explained in the Mephoshim, interesting one too, where, and of course, this point, to correct that point, Yerushalmi said that this was, this took place after the Navi walked out, and after Cheskiah HaMelech davened Hashem, was granted life, and then the Navi came back and said to Cheskiah HaMelech, now that you're going to live, you might as well try your best to have good children by taking my daughter. That's the Yerushalmi's version. The Farshim say that this was a retort. The case was before the Navi walked out. He said to Cheskiah HaMelech, you're going to die. It's too late for anything to help you. However, in a sense, you deserve it because you could have helped yourself. You could have, you should have married my daughter. You didn't do so. Therefore, you deserve the penalty, punishment. Of course, this is the type of uh, statement that's used by many a potential father-in-law who try to get sons-in-law either nicely or through threats. We call that shotgun weddings. In any event, it was a good offer. Factually, the fact was that eventually, after Cheskiah became cured, he did rise up from his bed and directly went to Yishayah took his daughter for a wife. She was the wife of Cheskiah and, as predicted, she gave birth. Cheskiah had two sons from her, the two sons' names were Menashe and Rav Shoke. These two sons he guarded very zealously because he was constantly alert and worried about his prediction, his prophecy of having sons that were Rishon, idol worshippers. Now, how do you protect children against such danger? You bring them up properly. Since Haskiah HaMalach had injected the desire for the study of Teda into every single Jew, every man, woman, and child, he certainly did so in the case of his own two sons. He gave them the best possible chinuch. He didn't take his eyes off them for a moment to see that they had only the best type of company, good friends, ones who would not influence them wrongly. This during their extreme youth. They were still children. He treated them as a father would, not as a king, but as a father, as a devoted father. Yomar says one day he was walking with them in the garden of the palace, 
palace gardens, and as a father would do, he took his two sons, carried them on his shoulders. They were seated on his shoulder. He was walking regally, dressed in his royal garments, wearing his crown. The crown is round, and in this circumference, there is depth. And while walking along this garden path, he heard the two sons whispering to each other. And one said to the other, look at this crown, how it is shaped. The indentation, where the center is deeply embedded. It's perfect. The other said, you're right. It's perfect for use as a mezbah, as an altar. This would be the perfect place to offer a sacrifice to Avedizorah, to idols. This, after all the effort and work he had put into these sons, this literally broke his heart at that moment. He felt so hurt, so deeply wounded, he took both sons and smashed them to the ground. Rav Shoke was killed instantly. Manasha, the other son, was wounded. He crawled off into the bushes and hid there. Eskelamelech thought they were both killed. He ignored them and forgot about them. Eventually, the time came when Eskelamelech was nostalgic. He passed away. And, of course, his only son took over the kingdom after him. His only son was Manasha. We'll get back to an amazing story about Manasha very soon. There's one short item to deal with. One last important item with after the miracle that occurred and his becoming cured, and the other miracle which gained world fame, where Sancheriv's army, the mighty army of Asher, had been wiped out during that night, the king of Bovel, whose name was Berodach Baladon ben Baladon, decided to send a messenger with peace greetings to Cheskiah he said, since a miracle like this happened, we must send peace greetings to so powerful a deity, Hashem, and to so worthy a king. He prepared this peace greetings to send to Cheskiel Malach. The wording of the peace greetings, the way it was sent, there's a peace in the Gemara, the part we are exactly up to now, the Gemara Shia, so we'll have that peace on Sunday. Continue this part, Navi now. He sent this, these messengers to Cheskiah Melech with this peace greeting. They were accepted, they were taken by Cheskiah Melech very warmly, very hospitably. Now what transpired in the palace when they came there, we'll take up in a moment. First, the Gemara says, note his name, Rodach Baladan ben Baladan, which means Baladan, son of Baladan. Father and son with the same name, how come? The Gemara answers, this showed that this son had extreme respect for his father. His father, Baladan, was the king. His name was Barodach. But he adopted the name of his father, too. He called himself Rodach Baladan, the son of Baladan. Why so? He shows extreme respect and loyalty to his father, who somehow his features changed, and his face took on the form, the features of a dog. This was so shameful, so embarrassing, that the king could not show his face. He was known as the king with a dog's face. And that word Baladan was synonymous for dog's face. His son Barodach displayed 
an extraordinary sense of loyalty to his father by adopting this name despite the connotation that it held. So we see the Gemara says what is meant by a true sense of devotion, a respect for a parent. Same time, it is pointed out very strongly. Note from the Gemara, the special point. Now this dates back before the era of the great Sephardic Empire. We note that it would be disrespectful, it is disrespectful, for a son to be given the same name as the father. In fact, to name anyone after a father while the father is still alive. Because a son, in respecting a father, has a very special law, very special law, that he is never permitted to call his father by his first name. That is a sacrilegious act, that is against the Torah, the severest sense. So if one would call a member of his family or himself as Junior, the name Junior, which means he has the same name as his father, he'd be mentioning that name often, even in front of his father, and that is an act of disrespect. Therefore, hence, we have a rule that a son who cannot call his father by his name should not have anyone in his immediate family, his children that is, named after his father, and certainly not himself, during his father's lifetime. Chiddush here was that despite that, the case of Barodah Palad, despite that, though it would seem to be disrespectful in that he called his name the same as his father, that is true. But here, the respect is showing a devotion to his father's appearance. That he himself prided himself with that name, which meant the appearance of a dog. This was even more important than the potential disrespect in calling himself after his father's name. Now from here, we learn at least one definite point, that it is certainly wrong for anybody, from any sect, to call his child, his son, and surely himself, the same name as his father during his father's lifetime. After the father passes away, it is proper memory of the father to give his child a name after his father. Not during his father's lifetime. This is a rule in the Shulchan Aruch, and very much stressed by the highest Sephardic authorities. The Chidozal was one of the most powerful Sephardic Peskim, writes this in the strongest terms. He considers it sacrilegious for any person, even if he's a mighty Sephardi, to call his child after his father during his father's lifetime. And here in the Gemara we find a definite substantiation of that fact. Now, as we said, Haskel HaMelech invited these guests, these messengers from Brodach Baladin into the palace. And there, he showed them around. He was very hospitable. He showed them all these secret passages in the palace. He showed them all the treasures that were found in the king's storage treasury. And when they left, Yishayonavi came to him of course, as a messenger from Hashem, and asked him, who are these people? Where do they come from? answered, they come from a very distant land. They come from the land of Bovel, Babylonia, which is Iraq. Very distant land, they are important guests. I treated them very hospitably, and I'm very proud of it. 
Shri answered, I want you to know, as a message from Hashem, the time will come for these same people in that country of Babel are going to return to your land, to the remaining two tribes, to Yerushalayim. They're going to plunder and remove everything from your treasury, from the base of Mikdash. They are going to drive the Jews out of Eretz Yisrael and the Golis. They're going to destroy all of Eretz Yisrael. This will be the destruction of the first base of Mikdash and the first major Golis. This, of course, was a blow to Cheskia Malach. And he said, at least this will not happen during my time. It will happen in a later generation. At least I'll be blessed by Hashem to have peace during my time. Well, the Midrash says, note, there were three people who had committed an act of this type in history. Three people whom Hashem tested, and they were found wanting. The first one was Cain. Hashem tested Cain's faith, and he said to Cain, where is your brother Hevel? Cain replied, am I the guardian of my brother? And of course, it was very wrong on the part of Cain. It showed a lack of faith in Hashem. His answer should have been very clearly, Hashem, nothing is hidden from you. You don't have to ask me where is Hevel. You know where everything is. That would have demonstrated a true faith in the greatness of Hashem. But Cain failed that test. Another one was Bilam. Bilam Harasha. An angel of Hashem spoke to Bilam at night and asked him, Who are these messengers who came to you? It was when Bullock, king of Moab, sent messengers to Bilam asking him to come to curse the Jews. And Bilam replied very haughtily, with pride, they, they are sent to me from Bullock, the king of Moab himself, sent these messengers to me. And of course, that too showed a degree of atheism, kfir, lack of faith in Hashem. Because he should have said, everything is known to you, Hashem. You asked who they are, you know who they are. Third one was Cheskio Amalach. When the Navi asked him, who are these people, where do they come from? Cheskio Amalach should have said, you are a Navi. You are a prophet, a seer, which means you see all from far. Of course, you know the answer. This would have shown that he had faith in a tzaddik. Instead... He answered with pride, they come to me from a distant land and they are showering me with honor. For this, he was given the retort that these people came to you where you thought they came to honor you, they came to spy out the land, and they are the ones that are going to destroy the remainder of the land of Israel and drive the remaining two tribes out into Goas. But as we said, Treskiah Malach replied, I am satisfied at least that this will not happen during my lifetime. My life will be a life of peace. It will happen during the time of my children. And it does not really worry me. It does not bother me. Because that's my children's problem. My descendants' problems, let them worry about it. Afterwards, Eskia Melech was nostalgic, passed away, and Benasha, his son, took over the kingdom. He reigned for 55 years. 55 years is a very long time despite the fact that there was this vast difference between Manasseh and Haskia Melech. Melech was a king who spread belief in Hashem throughout, who spread the study of Torah to every corner, every furthest recess of Israel, whose time the Jews were perfect. 
Russia instead turned to idol worship. They spread this idol worship among the Jews to a greater degree even than Yeravim Benavad. Now, at this point, Torah tells us about Menashe, that he lived a life of evil and he died. Very little is mentioned about his life in the Navi, except that it says he committed two major crimes. One was the fact that he spread idol worship. The second is the fact that he spilled innocent blood and he filled Yerushalayim from one end to the other with a river of this blood. Gemara says that what's meant by filling Yerushalayim with blood? Whom did he kill? Is that was it that many people? The answer is he killed Yeshayahu Navi. Because he murdered this Navi, the tzaddik, this Navi was the equivalent of the entire population of Yerushalayim. It was as though he had wiped out the entire city of Yerushalayim. Now from the Navi, these few sentences, we can learn very little about Manasseh. All we get from that is that he was evil, committed these two major crimes, Avadazara and Shvi and he lived this life of evil and died. After he passed away, his son Amon took over. Gemara is filled with stories at length about Menashe. It is this Gemara that we are dealing with in our present Shiurim. However, there's, there are a few points that we must deal with. When we get to them, in the Gemara, we will have more to say about it. First place, the Gemara says that there are certain kings who were so evil that they never merited Gan Eden. They never got to Gan Eden at all. One of those kings mentioned is Menashe. He was so bad, such a chate amachti, a sinner who made others sin too, that he lost his chance for Gan Eden. The Gemara says this is not a statement that is agreed upon by all. There was some who dispute this because there is a question as to whether Manasseh had performed the mitzvah of tshuva, whether he had repented to a deep enough degree, extent, to merit having his sins erased. Though these sins were so great, such extreme measure, yet the power of tshuva is so great too that it could erase any type of sins. He says, let us illustrate this case in point. Many generations later, the days of the rabbis of the Gemara, in fact, in the days of the last rabbi of the Gemara, the one who was known to have compiled holy of Shas, <coughs> of Ashi, prepared a lesson, a shia for his students. Of Ashi said to his students, we are now learning this Mishnah about these kings who did not get Ganadin. So tomorrow, he said, prepare for this shi'at. Tomorrow we're going to discuss our friend Menashe. We'll discuss our friend Menashe. Avashi was a very holy tzaddik, the rabbi of the Gemara, head rabbi at the end of the Gemara. Menashe listed in the Gemara as a king who was an idol worshiper, committed idolatry to the furthest degree possible. Gemara says that night, Ravashi had a dream. In his dream, he saw a specter, the figure of Menashe, Amelach, come before him, very angrily. Ravashi asked him, You are Menashe, the king of the Jews. Why are you angry? And why are you angry with me? Menashe said, I'm angry with you because how do you dare to call me your friend? What makes you worthy of being my friend? Ravashi was surprised. I thought I was complimenting you. I'm not that bad. 
Manasha said, well, before you call me your friend, let me first test you. A very simple question. Every child knows, before you eat bread, you make a motzi. A bracha hamotzi. A Now, bread has two parts to it. There is the crust, and there is the soft part in the center. And you make a motzi on bread, on which part is it the mitzvah to make the motzi on? The crust or the soft part? Rashi thought about this and said, never entered our minds. I don't know. But I just said, you don't know the answer to this question and you call me your friend? Avashi said, please, give me the answer to this question and tomorrow I shall give a shear and quote this halacha, this din, in your name. Credit you with this din, which of course is a big zechus for a neshama. The person quotes a neshama by name, that neshama comes to life Spirit comes to life even in this world, as though the spirit is living in two worlds. Manasha said the answer is Hecha Dikodan Bishula, which means that you must make a motzi on the part that is baked first. The first part of the bread that is baked becomes edible. That is the part you make a motzi on, which means naturally the crust. The crust is baked first, but therefore the motzi should be made on the crust and not on the inside the soft part. Ravashi said it's very wise and very clever. If that's the case, <clears throat> could you please explain to me, since you are so learned, so knowledgeable, how come that you worshipped idols? How come you went after such foolish things like idols at a time when you have so much knowledge and so much study and, and such greatness apparently? Why did you go for those idols, this idol worship? Manasha answered, you're very smart now when you live at a time when there exists no idol worship at all. Because generations back, the Sanhedrin got together, and they davened Hashem. They put together all the powers they had, the most fervent prayer possible to Hashem, that Hashem should destroy the Yitzhahara of Avadazara, vital worship. Destroy it permanently so that for all generations later, no Jew would ever be tempted to committing this sin, which caused the, basically caused the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash and the Golis of the ten tribes of Israel, later the two tribes also. So he said, at this time, when I lived, Benasha said, there still existed. Yitzhahara for idol worship to the extent that even the wisest of people would pursue, go after the potential sin of idol worship with relish. The desire for it then was greater than the taivas that exist today. Today we have three major taivas, the desire for food, the desire for money, the desire for illicit relationship. Ravashi, if you had lived in my time, but closed your, your coat very tightly, pull shouldn't stop you from speed, and you would have sped, ran after these idols at a much greater haste than I did. Do not condemn those who lived in those days and committed this idol worship. The next day, Ravashi came to the yeshiva, and he said, today we have a shear. 
Today we're going to discuss our Rabbi Menashe, not our friend. Now, there's a point of interest there, point of information. Before I explain what was meant by this question, why did Menashe specifically ask the question about making a mozi? And why did that question seem to stop Ravashi? Seems that any child today knows the laws of making a mozi. How to make a mozi is true, of course, we have it in writing already. It was resolved at that time. But it seemed to us that Ravashi would understand this question much more simply, easily. He wouldn't be so amazed at this revelation. The answer is that there was a much deeper exchange of words between the two. <coughs> Ravashi felt he was accosted by King Manasseh. Why do you call me a friend? Ravashi's reply was, I know that you're not a friend. I know that you are very great in learning. I know that you're very wise and very learned because you were the son of Cheskiah HaMelech in whose time everyone knew the entire Shas by heart. So of course you are a very great Talmud Chacham. However, I maintain, the Gemara says, the Gemara asks, which is more important? The study of Torah or carrying out that which is written in the Torah, the fulfillment of the mitzvahs of the Torah. Which of these two is greater? And Ravashi said, I feel that it's not the step to the ultimate goal, but the ultimate goal that counts. Study of Torah in itself is a very great mitzvah, but only because it leads to the fulfillment of its mitzvahs. And therefore, though you have studied Torah, you have not fulfilled the mitzvahs, you turn to idol worship. So enough that you be called a friend and not anymore. This point, Manasseh said to Ravashi, note, I ask you a question. When it comes to making a mozi, that where, which part of the bread do we make a mozi of? Why did he pick this question? Because if we observe closely, we find that every single type of bracha on food is worded differently than mozi. Every bracha speaks about creation. Ore prihagafen, ore prihaits, adomo, ore mine mezonos. Only in hamotzi we have the lashon hamotzi lechem min hearts. Hashem drew out bread from the earth, extracts. Hashem extracts the bread from the earth. When he creates it, he extracts it. What does this mean, Menashe said? This means that the oretz itself, the original sin, original act of Adam Harisho, with the tree of wisdom, Hashem said there, Aruna HaDomo, that the earth be cursed because of you. The curse of the earth was due to a sin, a transgression by Adam Harishon against Hashem's command. Despite this sin, still there was a means of defense against this curse. What was that defense? Defense was Chuba. Adam Harishon fasted for 130 years, during which time he did tshuva, he repented to the best of his ability, the deepest sincerity, and then Hashem said, Hamotzi lachem in hearts. Whereas before you had this curse, Bezeya sapecha techa lechem, you'll work the ground with sweat, 
eat that bread. Now, Hamotzi Lachem The Gemara says, not Bore and not Motzi, but Hamotzi. There's a special hay. And that hay means that where before there was a defect, there was a begun. The letter hay in Hashem's name stands for the Shekhinah. A person who commits a sin is called a pogame in the Shekhinah. He separates Kaviyachal, the Shekhinah, from Hashem. Instead of every mitzvah which combines the two, the Shem Yichud, Kuchabrichu, Shkentei, they unite Hashem and the Shekhinah. In the case of a sin, he separates the two. So the tshuva that a person does after the sin is committed, he does tshuva. Tshuva means teshuva is toshuv hey. He returns the hey back to Hashem. He brings the Shekhinah back to Hashem. He unites them. This is the perfection against the begun, done before. And that's what the letter Hamotzi, because of this perfection of the hey, because your tshuva repaired the harm done, therefore Hashem will now in turn bless you. He will extract, he will extract, Hashem will extract the bread from the ground rather than you with the sweat of your brow. Where do we see this from? Because where is this motzi made? From Hechade Kodem Bishula. Kodem Bishula means the first part which is baked, which means the very beginning. Hashem will hasten, will bring forth that bread faster than it would have come without the tshuva. You'd have to work and sweat for it. This was the lesson that Menashe taught to Ravashi, in which he said, we now prove something. We prove that there are two possibilities here. One, do we make the emotzi on that which is baked first, or on that which is baked at the very end? Which means, reference to Rav Ashi's statement, we have, we must first have the machshava. Machshava tchila, person plans, thinks. And then we have the maiseri action which comes later. Case of mitzvahs, the machshava must be the study of Torah. Person studies Torah. And then it's supposed to result in actions, deeds of mitzvahs fulfilling the commands in the Torah. We have the question here, which is more important, Machshava Tchila, thought first, a study, or the Maiset Vesayf, the Maiset at the very end, which of the two counts more? Of Ashi said, it's the end that counts, the fulfillment of the mitzvahs. When Ashi said, I prove to you, that when, though, there was a lack of fulfillment of the mitzvahs, the case of a person committing a sin, then we see that kodem bishula is the beginning that counts, the machshava, because tshuva can be done with a person's mind and thought. He plans his mind and his heart. He does tshuva, he repents. The tshuva is accepted, and Hashem hurries to accept this tshuva. This proves that though he had committed sins, Menashe, still the Torah he studied, which brought up the tshuva, was sufficient to have him have his tshuva accepted as though the mitzvahs had been fulfilled. It was this point that Rav Ashi agreed to, he accepted this argument, and said then, I realize that you are a tzaddik, and that refuting the statement of those 
in the Gemara who state that Manasha lost his Gan we see from this story that Manasha did repent for the sins he committed, for the wrong he had done, and that he was reinstated in the good graces of heaven. Proof of the fact is that he appeared before Avashi and spoke words of Torah. This could come only from a soul that was in Gan And of course, this too is a lesson the Gemara says what really happened. Abinazal speaks about this at great length. What happened to Manasha? After all, we are dis- dealing with a person who, no matter what his knowledge, no matter what his attributes, his qualities were, the fact remains that Manasha did cause wholesale idolatry, wholesale throughout the entire Jewish people. The fact remains that Manasha did cause the murder of Yeshayah Hanavi, one of the greatest prophets of all time. How could his tshuva be accepted? How can we reconcile the fact that after committing so many crimes, just by saying, I'm sorry, Hashem, he was taken back? Can a person, just by those two words, be taken back by Hashem despite a long life of crime and crimes of such magnitude? The answer is the Gemara itself says, When Manasseh turned to Hashem and said, Hashem, I'm sorry, take me back, all the angels in heaven stood there to block these words, to stop Manasseh's words from reaching the heavenly throne and to stand in battle against the possible chance of his repentance being accepted. And they fought. The angels all got together and fought as attorneys against Manasseh. These were the plaintiffs. And they said to Hashem, it would be very wrong to have Manasseh accepted back in the good graces of heaven after such major crimes. How can we take a person who has done so much harm and so much evil and say that all this is gone or forgotten to put him on the same level as a tzaddik who lived a life of purity? So therefore it would be unjust to have Manasseh's tshuva accepted. Hashem argued, but as is usual, the Gemara says, Hashem in his infinite humbleness, Kaviyochal, does not argue with the heavenly court, with the angels on high. We find many times in the Gemara where Kaviyochal, Hashem shows how a good leader should conduct himself by allowing his opinion to be swayed by the majority. And so Hashem did not argue with the angels. Instead, because of the still greater infinite mercy of Hashem, Hashem went below the heavenly throne. And there dug, we cannot use the literally the physical term. The term used Hashem dug a tunnel leading from the heavenly throne that bypassed all the angels in heaven to Menashe, allowing his tefillah, his prayer, his tshuva to go directly to the heavenly throne, which is the highest point in heaven over and above the realm of the angels. This is called and this says is a definite sign and a message to every Jew that if you feel that you are that low, you committed such crimes that perhaps, perhaps you might even compare to Manasseh, you lived a life of such evil and impurity, know that if all of heaven is against you, you will still have Hashem on your side. If all of heaven tries to block you, Hashem has that special tunnel leading from the heavenly throne to a Balchuva, one who wants to repent. So that the path for repentance is open always 
There's a means of getting to the highest point in heaven, the throne of heaven itself, the throne of Hashem, and the tshuva will be accepted. Above all, a person should know that never should he ever give up hope, regardless of how wrong and colorful his past was, no matter how serious his crimes against Hashem and against mankind were, even if it consisted of murder in the case of Anashit, even idol worship, still Tshuva can erase these sins too. And a person who keeps that thought in mind can never be lost. This was the Zechus of Menashe, who because of his obstinacy, his stubbornness in performing the mitzvah that was higher than all, mitzvah of Tshuva, he merited finally resulting in having his place in Gedeiden. We should be zechut to this pure degree of tshuva and amuna, and thereby merit seeing with our eyes the descendant of King David, Mashiach and David, coming of Mashiach, being a base of Mikdash.